guys are awesome. I appreciate the applause. Can I say, um, you can have a seat. That's great. Can I say, it's, it really is a privilege to be part of the team that is here that worships, loves Jesus, and loves you, and serves Jesus and serves you. It is a gift to be able to bring uh, the word to you today, and so I'm really thankful for that opportunity and uh, thankful for this place. Are you thankful for this place? I'm thankful for this place. Hey, I'm gonna, um, let me open in prayer and then we're gonna jump right in. So Father, we just pray today asking that your spirit would move in our hearts and our minds. Would you speak loudly, louder than any words I have to say, would you speak to those in this room? Would your spirit move? Would we sense you, acknowledge you, and worship you. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, so um, when I was a kid, we did not eat out very much. We McDonald's and maybe Sunday night pizza. That was about the extent of it. Anybody else like that? Do we have foodies in here? Foodies? Okay, you're going to hate me. Okay, so foodies, you're not going to like me today. And that's okay, because one of the things I've learned, you know, my palate was McDonald's and Shakey's Pizza, and that was about it. And um, so as I got older and I started being exposed to other different foods, uh, I've honestly, I'm ignorant. I'm just fully ignorant. So I'll go to a restaurant and I won't understand the menu. It's like, it might as well be written in French, which sometimes it is, you know, but it's like, uh, I don't have an understanding for what it says, because I don't have this experience with all this food, and so we went, we went out about a month ago to a restaurant, and I'm reading it, and I've got my phone under the table trying to Google what the things are, because I don't understand what they are, so I'm going to give you some of the words that I got, and you might know it, but um, I was reading about handmade pappardelle pasta. I have no idea. Is that squiggly or flat? Like, that's all I want to know. I just want to know the basics. Squiggly, flat, I still don't know, but somebody can tell me again. Large jumbo shrimp. I didn't know there were medium jumbo shrimp or small jumbo shrimp because it already has the word jumbo in it. So I'm a little confused. There was something on this menu that was called Holy Trinity. I have no idea what that is, except I know a Holy Trinity but I don't know how it relates to my food. Like, is it a sauce? Like, I don't know, just sprinkled? I don't know. I have no idea. But like, we got all these words like bechamel sauce, gratte caputo cheese. I think you have to say it that way, right? And I'm like, is this somebody's name? Is it an adjective? I, I honestly have no idea. So I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna go with steak because steak's easy, right? So then I get on the steak, it comes with fingerling potatoes. I'm like, what are fingerling potatoes? Are they potatoes that grow that look like fingers? And there's like some delicacy somewhere. No, they're Jojo's from Shakey's Pizza. That's what they are. The, can you just call them Jojo's? I know what they are then. But fingerling potatoes, I got no idea. And uh, it comes with blistered cherry tomatoes. Dude, don't put blister on my food. That is nasty. Your hiking problems are your own. We got bandages in the back. I don't want that on my food. And then uh, the steak comes sliced to perfection. I'm like, dude, I'm not four. I can cut my own meat. Like, we're good, you know, we're good. But I, I, so often I feel out of place in a fancier restaurant. I, I don't know how I belong in that. And it takes a lot of work for me just to understand, for some people, a really simple menu. 
And I think when we come into church, there's many things in the same way. Like we say a lot of the same words and have like this vocabulary of things that might feel commonplace. And you just want to know if it's squiggly or flat noodles, right? Like, um, because you don't, you haven't grasped it, or maybe you've, you've started, I've been to this restaurant enough times, I kind of got the idea, but you still don't know. And so today what I want to do is lean into something that we say around here all the time, but maybe we can learn a facet of it, get a bigger picture, a better picture, a more uh, new, maybe with nuance, but add some of the robustness to it. And what that is, is the word faith. Because what happens in church is we, we hear words all the time, you know, like faith, grace, uh, salvation, all this stuff. And we like it. We want, you know, scoop it on a plate, sprinkle a little, a little uh, extra on it and, you know, put in a side of raised hands. And that's a place I want to go back to because the service is good. The price is right. It had a nice environment, you know, um, all those things. I'll, I'll come back again. And yet, like, we want to know what we're digesting, like what's going on for us. So I want to take some time today and talk about one of the key ingredients of Christianity, and that is the word or idea of faith. And uh, what I've titled today's message is Two Sides of the Same Coin. So if you're taking notes, you can write that down, Two Sides of the Same Coin. We're going to be in a bunch of Bible today, uh, camping out in one passage in particular. But uh, I, I really want to look at this passage because... As I was thinking about faith, and honestly, the whole topic of it came up because I had the opportunity to speak at a youth camp a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about faith, and so I was just wrestling around with it a lot. And there's so many passages in Scripture because that is the journey that God's called us on, a faith journey, and, and I kept getting drawn back to this other passage. And so we're going we're gonna to camp out today in Luke 7, uh, 1 through 10. So let me read it for you. When he, that's Jesus, had concluded saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. A centurion's servant who was highly valued by him was sick and about to die. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, requesting him to come and save the life of his servant. When they reached Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy for you to grant this because he loves our nation, and he's built us a synagogue. Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to tell him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, since I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and I say to this one, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found so great a faith even in Israel. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant in good health. So we've got some amazing, praiseworthy faith to talk about in this passage. And so I thought it would be good to dig in, talk about some of the players in this passage so that we can understand some of the context that we're talking about. So in the order of appearance, we first have a centurion. So a centurion is a Roman soldier. And like his name suggests, he has at least 100 soldiers under his command. 
century, centurion. So he's, he's a guy who has developed into this position, grown into this position through battle. He's not specially educated. He's just started as a soldier and has worked his way up. So he doesn't have special training, but he understands what it looks like to win. The guy's a winner, right? He's a fighter. He's been through battles. He hasn't died, so he got promoted. That's pretty much how the picture works. But he's also middle management, right? So he has authority over 100 or so soldiers, but he also has people over him, legionnaires that command a massive amount of soldiers. So he's also Roman. He's in a place that, in essence, he doesn't belong. He's an outsider, an occupier, uh, trying to keep the peace, the Pax Romana of the day, which they kept through brute force. So it wasn't true peace. It was modified peace, and it was his job to help keep it. We have no idea how he hears about Jesus, just that he heard about him. We don't know what the context for that is, just... He heard about, when he heard about Jesus, he sent people to ask Jesus for a servant. And he and Jesus never meet. Did you catch that? They never meet. They never talk face to face. He never says words directly to him. It's a unique situation. The next person we hear about is the servant. The servant is sick and about to die, but the servant's highly valued to the centurion. There's some kind of relationship here where the centurion cares about this individual. And so he goes or sends people to Jesus, who's our third character in the narrative. So we know Jesus as the son of God, the author of life, savior of the world. But the context right here is just that Jesus got back from a long road trip. He'd been preaching for a while. He'd been talking about loving your enemies. He'd been talking about don't judge others. He'd been talking about you got to build your life on the foundation of me. And he wanders into Capernaum which is kind of his home base in Galilee with a crowd behind him and this guy sends people to go talk to him. Jesus has a chance here to live out how to love your enemies, to show others this is how we, we love our enemies. Next, we find the Jewish elders. These folks are the people that I am having the hardest time comprehending in this story. It's really a weird dynamic because if you're a Roman soldier, you can just command people to come your way. And so there's some bridge in here. I don't know, maybe it's a language bridge because these guys could speak Aramaic and Jesus spoke Aramaic. Or maybe it's a, hey, I did this for you. You go do this for me because they said that guy built him a synagogue. Maybe the Jewish elders themselves are volunteering their time. Hey, we know this guy. We know you got a sick servant. We want to help you out. Or maybe their motives are bad. And they're like, hey, if we get Jesus in front of this Roman centurion and he can't heal the servant, maybe we get this show on the road a little further to the crucifixion part. We don't know. But we know that they're in here, and it's kind of weird that they're here, but they're there. And then lastly, we have some friends because somewhere along the way, the message got warped or twisted or different than what the centurion really wanted to communicate. The elders have a really short statement and the friends have a much longer, fuller statement. The friends know him, can speak for him. In fact, they speak in the first person for him. That's why sometimes we don't realize he's not there. They're speaking on his behalf as I. There are going to be a more genuine representation 
of the centurion to Jesus and these Jewish elders were. So we have our context, and at the end of this passage, what we hear Jesus say is, I've not found so great a faith even in Israel. So I figured if we were going to talk about faith, it would probably be good to talk about the centurion guy since he's praised so highly in this. And maybe we can learn something about our own faith as we learn about him. Because faith is multifaceted. It's like a diamond, right? It has all these different sides to it. And we aren't going to hit all the facets of it today. But I did want to touch on some of it because faith is this cool word that is, it's got a noun and it's got a verb to it, right? So it is a thing, but it's also an action. And uh, so faith is what we use for the noun. Like really easy. It's a, it's a faith, the faith, your faith, blah, blah, blah right? It's a noun. And then we use the word believe for the action because you can't really faith in something. That sounds weird to our language. So we say believe. Same word, just noun versus verb. And so when we talk about faith as a noun, we're, we try to grasp that a lot of times in statements. So like as Pastor Jason was talking, we're going to be going through this tethered series and we're going to talk about our statement of faith. Right, our faith statement. So the, the, the things that we believe as a church through time, they're, they're propositions that we can say, yep, I agree to that, or nope, I don't. And these have been in existence since the beginning of Christianity. Some of you may have grown up in a tradition that recited a creedal statement or some, some statement in your church growing up that you know we, the Apostles' Creed has been around for almost two millennia. And we have, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father, from which he will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Yeah. yeah. Some of you are probably mouthing these words as I said them. You've recited them so many times. They're just part of, like, ingrained in your, uh, in your mind, like the Pledge of Allegiance or something else that you've said over and over and over again. And so there are ideas that we agree with, and so often what I find when we're in a church setting is that we give a cognitive yes to that. Yep. And then we move right along. Right. Because we're willing to give a mental ascension to it. Oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds all good. I'm glad they hold the same thing that I was taught when I was a kid so that now we match and we can be friends and I can be in this place and feel like I'm part of it. But we don't give any action to it, any movement to it. It's just all in our headpiece, right? It's all up here. And then there's another part where faith is so much an action for us that all we're doing is moving forward at the speed of light, hoping God catches up to us, right? So like in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, we take a step off the cliff, hoping the invisible bridge is there. We say, let go and let God, Jesus, take the wheel, throw our coins in a fountain, make a wish on the first star at night, blow out our candles and hope for the best with our fingers crossed as we're moving forward. And the faith that Jesus is talking about here isn't like either of these. And so we've got it twisted and warped if that's the faith that we're looking for and the faith that we're trying to go out. So what I want to talk about 
is the two sides of the same coin of faith. And Jesus talks about faith in his very first statement in the book of Mark. So in Mark 1:14, we read, after John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time's fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. We have two verbs here, repent and believe. They are the two sides of the same coin. One can't exist without the other. They belong together. You know, two sides of the same coin. It's a colloquialism. It's a thing that we say they're so closely related that they can't be separated even though they have distinction to them, right? You got heads, tails, but they're still the same coin. They're tied together. And so Jesus is saying repentance and belief, repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. They belong together. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time is talk about four different points on how repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. So point number one, can I get a number one? one. Repentance is recognizing one's sin. I hear a little grunt, little sin, gross, little icky. Don't talk about that. I know we don't like to talk about it. It's a weird word for us now. It, it doesn't feel good to speak about sin. I, um, I regularly go to soccer matches, and uh, I've noticed at the end of them now, there are street preachers out there with megaphones talking about sin and hell, and most people ignore them because it's not a comfortable conversation to have. I typically ignore them too, mostly just because I want to get home. And I kind of know the answers to what they're talking about, I think. I don't know, sometime I'll stop and see what, what we got just out of my own curiosity. But sin's often seen as a dirty word, but it's not because of the sin itself. We just don't like the idea of it. We take this idea of sin, we don't want to talk about the internal nature of what sin is, that it's inside me, that I got a problem in here called sin, and we externalize it and we put it all outside. So sin is out here. Sin is on you and you and the way that you treat me. Sin is on that system, that power structure, that person in authority. We, we take it and we push it outside of us and talk about how everything's wrong in the world. My reaction is based on the way that you spoke to me. I no longer have responsibility for what I did. It's all because of what you did. Because this is what we find. We just see it so often as just as something perpetrated against me and not that we're the perpetrators. That it's something going on inside of us. It's a darkness in our soul that we listen to far too frequently and we don't like to admit it. See, what we've learned about power and systems that we, that we like to blame, we'll say this system's corrupt or this person in power, or you may have heard the phrase like eat the rich, right? Like it's just, we want to get rid of all this power and authority and things around us. And the problem is when we start to believe that, we believe wrong things about who God is. Because what we're told in scripture is that God is all powerful, all powerful. He has all the power. He is not corrupt. He's blameless and without sin. So power in and of itself can't be corrupt and sinful. Misused power, yes. By what? By a sinful human being. So you misuse power. 
You misuse it. I misuse it. It's been misused. Don't get me wrong. But it's not power in and of itself. The same as systems. God made order from chaos through systems. So systems are not sinful, but sinful people that propagate and manage systems in a wrong way. That's where our problem is. So we have to realize that power and systems aren't inherently bad, but it's the people that establish and manage them from their sinful nature that makes it bad. We have to do the job of recognizing our own sin. So we're in systems and in power all the time. Can you admit to the sin that's going on in you? Because you know what? My wife's comment to me is not what caused me to sin. Right? Devon's side eye at me is not what caused me to sin. You know? Me being asked to be in this opportunity doesn't make me sin in my own pride. I do that on my own. And so our job is to realize that our response and what we do isn't a result of some magic chain of reactions that then causes us to respond a certain way. No, we chose that response. We did it. So we got to own it and we got to repent from it and confess it. That's the job of us. We're supposed to recognize it and then deal with it. Number two, Repentance is a resolution to turn from one's sin. So once you have this uh, recognition of what it is going on in your life, once you have a recognition, I got something, there's something in me that I have a tendency to do or that I've done, we acknowledge it with our brain, but a lot of times that's as far as we go. Yep, I know I have this problem, but, you know, I just guess I will have to submit to it because I just keep going that way. We don't do anything with action. We just recognize, man, I, I yell at my kids all the time. Right. Oh, it's another day of yelling at my kids. Well, right. new day, I guess I'll just start over. That's not how we're designed to work. We're supposed to repent, which is acknowledging it and then turning from it. So our friends in here that are in recovery, they understand this so well because you have to acknowledge the problem that you've got, then you turn the other way and walk away from it. And we have to do that in our pride. We have to do that in our anger. There's so many areas that we have to acknowledge that and then turn from it. Because we say things like, oh, I'm just a broken person. Man, I really struggle in this area. Those are true. But can I tell you that it's much worse news than that. It's much worse news. Because not only am I broken and struggle, but I am dead right. in my trespasses right. and sins. Right. Ephesians 2.1 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not sick, not broken, not struggling, dead. Dead, dead. We actually need new life. We need resurrection. We need transformation. We need a change. We need something different, not the same old. And the only way you get that different is to repent, to acknowledge and turn. 
So you ready for some Bible? So in John 3, 16, we read, For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son so that everyone who believes in, has faith in, places their faith in, will not perish, but have eternal life. Not death, life. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Colossians 2, 12 through 15, you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive. He made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of death with its obligations that was against us and opposed us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. It's a turning. It's a change. We don't have a dead life anymore. When we say yes to Jesus, we have a new life. And he's calling us to turn from that. Because we read these words about the centurion, the elders come up to Jesus and say, hey, this God deserves it. He deserves your miracle because he did this and he did this. He loves our nation and he built us a synagogue. Well, he quickly, that centurion says, that's not the message. That's not the message. No, 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 no. I don't deserve to have you come here. I don't deserve to have you come here. You can't even come under my roof. I am not worthy. His posture has nothing to do with what he's done, what he said, even who he is. His posture is one out of humility, which is what repentance is. It's humility. This is the place that I am. He says, I don't deserve anything, but because of who you are and the authority you have, I'm going to make this request. All right, number three, faith is believing in the truth of Jesus. In Luke 7, 3, we read that the centurion heard about Jesus. Heard what? We don't even know what he heard. We can make a couple of assumptions through looking at the text. Presumably, he heard that Jesus could heal because that's what he asks for. And presumably, if we make a logical kind of argument, that Jesus would have some kind of power and authority that's special and unique to give him that ability to bring healing. But he didn't have the whole picture of who Jesus was. I mean, Jesus is still alive. He doesn't know anything about the cross, the resurrection, anything that's to come. What he did have was a willingness to submit to this authority and power of Jesus. You and I, we have the whole picture. Not just a little smidgen. We got the whole picture. And yet I wonder if Jesus would praise my faith. If he would be amazed at your faith. We've got these awesome statements in scripture. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who, existing in the form of God, didn't consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, and when he'd come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name. 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, long ago, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. Sometimes we think if we had prophets, we'd listen to them. They didn't, we wouldn't, all right? God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression or representation or imprint of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, in Colossians 1, 15 through 23, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We have these statements, bold, big, beautiful statements of who Jesus is. And we can say amen. And we can say we, we believe them, but if they'd have no impact right. on our life, they don't matter. They don't matter. You can say, I believe in Sasquatch, but if you still go out in the woods by yourself, you don't really believe it, right? <laughs> I mean, and in essence, it doesn't really matter whether you do or don't. But faith in the God of the universe, a belief in the God of the universe that has impact on your life. Yeah. It requires change. It requires something yeah. uh, in you, yeah. in your posture. That's good. All right, my final point, point number four, faith is submitting to Jesus. Yeah. Jesus praised the centurion's faith. He was amazed at it. In Luke 7, 6 through 8, the centurion through his friend, says, Lord, don't trouble yourself since I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go and he goes, and to another, come and he comes, and to my servant do this, and he does it. Jesus heard this and was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I've not found so great a faith even in Israel. I've heard this passage talked before, taught before, and a lot of times what we say that his faith is praised for is because Jesus isn't in proximity to him. It's a distance healing, right? Like we've got this far distance, and the centurion said, just say it, and he'll be healed. Well, we, we have other stories and narratives. I say story, I mean story in the best way. These are true, real things that have happened. We have other narratives in the Bible that show that Jesus healed from a distance. So what makes this one an amazing act of faith? And what we get is all this other dialogue of a man who sees himself under the authority of Jesus. 
and that Jesus has authority in this, in this picture. So the only other time Jesus was amazed was in Mark 6. So Mark 6, 1, it says, He left there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things? They said. What is this wisdom that's been given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, a prophet's not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I love that. Jesus couldn't do anything there except heal a bunch of people, you know? Like, but then verse six, he was amazed at their unbelief. He was amazed at their unbelief. Only two times Jesus was amazed at their unbelief and the centurion's belief. So what's the difference? What's the difference between them? Well, these people that in the town that he grew up in, they had sort of this casual familiarity with him. Oh yeah, carpenter's son. I saw the first cabinet that guy built. Who's he to do all this stuff? Who does he think he is? But I've got a casual familiarity, but man, he's, he's talking about bigger, powerful things. I can't do, I mean, He's just a, he was just a kid when I met him. I can't submit myself under that kind of an authority. Who does he think he is? The centurion says, here's somebody with authority. Here's somebody that I can say, I can submit under that authority. He has power to heal my servant, whether he's here or not. The difference is in the willingness to be submissive. It's not in magic words. It's not even in the knowledge. People in his hometown knew him better than the centurion did. The centurion knew a little bit, and yet his faith was praised and given amazement because he was willing to submit. Because the word that he uses for worthy, we find worthy a lot in this passage, but it's different than not deserve or deserving and not deserving. He doesn't say deserving or not deserving. He uses the same word that John the Baptist says, I am not worthy to untie the sandal of Jesus. It's a posture. It's a positional thing. He says, I'm not worthy. You have power and authority over me and over the situation. It's a positional unworthiness. It's a reverence. It's recognizing Jesus in his otherness. Friends, the submission to the authority of Jesus is what makes his faith amazing. He recognized the kingship of Jesus and placed himself under that authority. I find in my life and my own journey of faith, when I, when I find that my faith is like, just okay, like, just we're going, we're okay but I wonder where's the life of it? Where's the vibrancy of it? Where, where's any, like, why does it just kind of feel dead and all right? Like I'm here at church, it's a good thing. You might be in this place too. What I've found is that it's usually reflective of where my repentance is at because they're two sides of the same coin. So when I want my faith 
to be stronger, when I want my faith to have confidence in it, that's when I gotta be repenting of the things that are blocking this relationship with Jesus. And I gotta be honest. It's not just, God, I'm sorry. Can you make things better? Thanks, amen. For me, I've found that when I can name it, it takes away the power of it. God, I've, man, I've been, I've just been in this place of pride. Been in this place of pride. Can you break that pride out of me? God, I'm sorry for these words that I spoke to my kids. God, I'm sorry. Not in some vague way that I looked at pornography. God, I'm sorry that I've violated somebody and I've sinned against my body, relationships that I'm in. Specificity takes away the power. It doesn't, it gets the talons that have your heart away and loosen. I ask the question, am I broken over my sin? Does it cause me grief? If I feel okay with it, then my faith is just gonna remain okay. Because I gotta be honest. I gotta let God's spirit root that out. Faith that is praiseworthy, a faith that amazes Jesus is when we humble ourselves into our rightful place under his authority. We believe who he says he is. That's when he gets to be that miracle worker. That's when he cleanses us, works that stuff out, changes you. You get made new from the inside out. You start recognizing him doing things in our life. And I think in this room, I know if you're like me, yo, man, there's just stuff in my life that I don't know that I've been honest about with God, that I haven't been specific enough. And I wonder why my faith's just like stagnant. We're just going through the motions now. So if you would, would you just bow your head and close your eyes? If you have something right now that you just need to say, God, I'm sorry for this. Would you just take a moment and say that? Maybe you're new to this whole idea of faith. Then as we say, kicking the tires of faith around here. I wanna give you the opportunity to respond to what God's spirit might be doing inside of you in this moment. So I'm gonna ask all of us from the back to the front, we're gonna pray this together. So if you could repeat after me, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm dead in my sin. Today I choose to repent from my sin. I believe you have authority over my life. I commit today to follow you. Thank you for saving me, for giving me new life. And today I'm deciding to follow you, my King. In Jesus' mighty name.